Our first reading today is from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 25. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading this morning is from John chapter 14, verses 22 to 31. The Lord be with you, and also with you. The Holy Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Judas, not Iscariot, said to Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, they will keep my word, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Wherever you are, let's pray together. Father, as you've made your home in us by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you make now of our world your eternal dwelling place and fill it with the fullness of your glory, of your presence, and make this into an entirely new creation. We ask in the name of your ascended Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So again, we are celebrating Pentecost today as a way to commemorate with the global church of the advent of the Spirit 
into the bodies of Christians ever since Jesus had gone into heaven. Now, our gospel reading that Monique had read for us, it recounts Jesus anticipating this moment, this historic moment in time, as one huge piece of assurance that Jesus would leave with his disciples because they were troubled by the bad news that they've just heard. Because again, we're still in the same chapter. We're just still in chapter 14 of John after Jesus had just broke the news that he was leaving and that even he would be betrayed by one of his disciples. But Jesus was not going to leave. He's not going to book it just to leave his disciples without any kind of assurance. All this chapter, he's been comforting them. Now, one piece of assurance Jesus left them with is that he's actually departing to prepare a place for them, for us, in his Father's house. Now, a second piece of assurance is that the disciples are already seeing with their own eyes God himself whenever they're seeing physically Jesus Christ. It's the same way for us. Whenever we see Jesus in the pages of the Bible, we are witnessing who God really is. And then the the third piece, third piece of assurance is that Jesus will be asking his Father to send them another helper, to send us another advocate, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. Now at this point, the disciples could not imagine how this other helper would be interacting with them. Is this other helper going to be another Messiah? But isn't there just one Messiah? Aren't you the one Jesus? Like, why are you leaving? Is there another Messiah that's going to come down? Will the Holy Spirit, in fact, usher in God's kingdom on earth if you won't be doing it, Jesus? No, so he's called the Holy Spirit. Like, does that mean that we can see him? Does it mean that we can touch him? Is he even a person? What's going on here? Again, so much breaking news coming at them. They had so many questions. Peter had his questions. Thomas had his. Philip made his demand, show us the Father. And then this time, Judas, he's also known as Jude or Thaddeus. He's not the same guy as Judas Iscariot. He asked his question. So we read in verse 22. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to John chapter 14. In verse 22. Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? That was his question. Now, Judas' question showed how he understood where things with Jesus were leading up to, right? I mean, just a few days ago, they just witnessed with their own eyes what seemed to be the whole world converging into Jerusalem, rallying around Jesus and hailing him as Messiah King. Seeing, as it were, the world gather around the man that you've been following for three years, The disciples could not imagine anything that would happen later on other than Jesus establishing the kingdom of heaven in Jerusalem. Romans destroyed the surrounding Gentile nations, swept over by Israel's God, and the whole world blanketed, covered by the glory and presence of Yahweh. That was the only thing in their mind. But it was starting to sound like that wasn't going to happen. And so, Judas' question How is it, Jesus, that you're going to show yourself only to us and not to the world? Aren't you about the rest of the world? Aren't you supposed to bring down all of heaven into all of this planet? Now Jesus responds in verse 23. If anyone loves me, they will keep my word. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. That seems like another cryptic response from Jesus. 
It appeared as though Jesus had just sidestepped Judas's question. Did he answer the question? Yes, Jesus was actually answering the question, but in an indirect way. Because as we'll see in this gospel passage, Jesus' answer is a longer, it's a longer response, it's a longer exposition for how, will, how he will in fact show himself, manifest himself to the rest of the world. It just isn't the way that disciples had imagined it to be. So how will Jesus show himself to the world? According to Jesus, it has, it has something to do with God making his home in the bodies of Christians. It has something to do with God making the bodies of Christians his temple, his home, his residence, to show the world, to manifest to the world who Jesus is, to show the world that Jesus is the Son of God, to show the world that he is the Messiah. Now in our gospel reading, Jesus will describe at least three signs, three signs or three fruits, as it were, that show evidence that God has in fact made his home in us. Now these three fruits, they correspond with the fruit of the Spirit that the Apostle Paul listed in our first reading from Galatians that Valerie read for us. At least the first three, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Now in our gospel reading, they're not in the order as Paul listed them, but in the order that Jesus described them in love, peace, and joy. Again, we'll be looking at these three fruits as Jesus described them in here. Love, peace, and joy. So first, the fruit of love. In verse 23, if anyone loves me, they will keep my word. My Father will love them. We will come to them and make our home with them. Now, before we get into anything about love here, this is the only, it's the only occurrence in the New Testament where it describes the Father making his home in people. It's the only time. Because the New Testament talks more so about the Holy Spirit inhabiting Christians and less so about Jesus, the Son of God, inhabiting us. And even less so, and this is the only time in the New Testament, that the Father is said to inhabit Christians. And that's coming from the lips of Jesus, the Son. Now this is just to say, I mean, that's another sermon, but this is just to say that the witness of the New Testament is very clear. It's all, all of the triune God. Not just in part, not just this one person in you of the of the Trinity. It's all of the Trinity who inhabits the Christian. All the Trinity, three persons, God, indivisible yet distinct. They're perfectly experienced in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son together in the Spirit, united. All of the infinity of heavens. Think about it. In your three-dimensional physical being right now, the heavens and the earth cannot even contain His glory. And it pleased the Lord to make his humble abode in you, in me, and those who are yet to believe and repent of sin and claim Christ as Savior and Lord. Who could imagine such a thing? So, the first evidence that the Spirit is in you, that the Trinity has made his home in you, it's the fruit of, the lo of love. Now, this love isn't a generic kind of love. It's, a kind, it's not the kind of love that's just being nice and decent to each other. It's the kind of love that Jesus is talking about where it is a love for his words. It is a love for his words. That is his teachings, his sayings. 
Now we may ask, what's not to, what's not to love about Jesus' teachings, right? I mean, if I were to go out into King Street and to ask any pedestrian along the way right now, like ask them if Jesus' teachings are good, most of them will likely affirm that, yeah, I think Jesus' teachings are good, you know, and they're quite lovely to follow. You know, do to others as you would have them do to you. Don't judge or else you'll be judged. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry itself, you know. What's not to love but the teachings of Jesus, right? What about the teaching that unless you eat my flesh, you drink my blood, you can't be my follower? Unless you hate your parents, your spouse, your children, even your own life, you can't be my follower. Love your enemies. Love them. Love those who hate you. Bless those who consistently curse you. Pray and bless those who harm you. Turn the other cheek. Walk the extra mile. Give all that you have to those who oppress you. Forgive those who have done you wrong, but not just seven times, but 77 times. Meaning an unlimited and complete way, no matter what. What about those teachings? <laughs> Earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 6, Jesus' initial band of followers, they were whittled down because some of them made a double take on Jesus. What did they say? Oh, your teaching is hard, Jesus. Who could accept them? And then many of them, according to John, stopped following Jesus and left. Now, does our love for Jesus' words apply only to those we like and agree with? What's kosher in our progressive society or does it apply to all of his words they're hard would jesus have us just pick and choose through his teachings like a buffet or would he have us follow them all or none at all now jesus teachings demand a revolutionary way of being a radical moral ethical way of living that surpasses even the jewish traditions of the elders I mean, these were extra-legal commentaries on the laws of Moses. And these extra laws, they were already deemed very, very strict. And I'm just talking about the ethical standard that Jesus had set for the world. It's humanly impossible to attain. It's humanly unrealistic to enforce. Because again, this is Jesus' words. Rage against someone, that's murder. If you are furious with someone beyond just a necessary emotion, you have killed that person. And according to Jesus, you're mentally craving for someone's body in a sexual manner. That's equal to fornication. Now, by that standard, we would all be considered, according to Jesus, murderers and rapists. That's crazy. Now, there are two responses to this, all right? There are two. The first is, now, where would our Western civilization be without Jesus' Beatitudes or his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew? Where would our world be without his Sermon on the Plain in Luke, without his temple discourses, his farewell discourses, his high priestly prayer in John? That's just his sayings, without mention of his works of compassion, his works of miracles, his manner of suffering and dying on the cross. What would our Western liberal democratic society look like without the teachings and example of Jesus. Our world, our world would not be the way it is today without Jesus. Yes, the world is not perfect. I'm not saying the world 
is perfected because of Jesus' teachings. It's not the same. It would be radically different without Jesus' words and examples. And then here's the second response. How could we possibly live up to Jesus' teachings and moral standard? How could we even come close to love these hard words, these hard teachings of Jesus? We read in verse 26. Jesus said, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Now the immediate fulfillment of this is that Jesus, after he ascended, his disciples were enabled by the Spirit to remember and record all that they've seen and heard from Jesus. They've recorded it in the New Testament, in the Gospel that we have in the Bible now. But then the ongoing fulfillment of this is that the Spirit continues to do the work of, uh, in Christians to teach us and remind us of Jesus' words as we have them in the New Testament. Now this isn't a matter of like a cognitive recall. It's like some kind of Sunday school exam and the Spirit in the back of your mind doing like flashcards in your brain. That's not what it's saying. This is actually a matter of life and living, of becoming like your teacher. Again, this is a Jewish context. One essential component of the rabbinical tradition of discipleship is that a young man or a young person who is being mentored by his rabbi is expected to emulate the rabbi's way of living. Rabbinical mentorship is, wasn't carried out in a classroom or in a workshop. It's carried out in real life, everywhere. Your exam, as it were, was always being carried out everywhere every time, every circumstance and scenario, but your rabbi is always beside you. Your rabbi is always with you. You're looking to your rabbi. You're seeing him. You're observing him. You're hearing him. You're smelling him, as it were. Now, until Jesus comes back, the Spirit who bears Jesus' name, he is now our current and constant rabbi. The Spirit is always beside us, always in us, always examining and evaluating our hearts and minds everywhere, every time, every circumstance. He's teaching us Jesus' words whenever we're in ignorance. He's always reminding us the words of Jesus whenever we forget them. He's always prodding us and pushing us to obey Jesus' words whenever we fail them. As we go through the uncertainties and mysteries of life, the difficulties and struggles of our personal and collective existence. Now the ultimate goal of rabbinical discipleship is that the student would become like their rabbi in every respect. Their mannerisms, their preferences, their habits, their customs. The Holy Spirit is teaching and reminding us the words of Christ so that not that we could ace an exam finally in the end during judgment day with a father with us with like a piece of paper and asking us questions. That's not the point. Is that we will become like Jesus Christ even right now today in your couch, in your bed, wherever you are. You are being like Jesus in your being, in your existing, in your living and thinking and breathing. The Holy Spirit is doing that in us. Now going back again to the fruit of love, the Spirit's work is to teach and remind us so that his work is to ripen, to sweeten, to mature the perfect likeness of Jesus in us. To produce the rabbi image, as it were, in us. And because of the Spirit, 
It is actually possible. It is supernaturally possible to live up to Jesus' standards. It is. We will fail every time, but we will ask. We can ask for forgiveness and for transformation. It's supernaturally possible to love Jesus' very, very, very hard teachings. This is the fruit of love that the Spirit bears in us. Now, secondly, the fruit of peace. In verse 27, Jesus said, Peace I live with you, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Now, that's a parallel statement. It's a parallel saying. It's just another way of Jesus saying the, repeating what he said in the previous statement. That is, I'm leaving you another advocate. So he's basically saying here, I'm sharing with you the shalom of my divine being, the Holy Spirit who is shared between me and the Father. The world can't give this shalom, obviously, because the Spirit is not from the world. You can't give what you don't have. But I can give that. I possess the Spirit fully, infinitely, and I'm the one who shares that to you. And the Spirit comes bearing my name. So the fruit of peace that the Spirit bears in us is not so much like this inner sense of calm and tranquility, although that means that because Jesus did say, don't let your hearts be troubled or let them be afraid. Yes, the Spirit does give us a sense of, of calm and we're not oppressed by the debilitation of fear and terror in us. But more so, the fruit of peace that the Spirit bears in us that transforms us into agents of God's peace mediators of Christ's peace in the world. Oh, how does our world really, really need the peace of Christ? The very complex conflict between Israel and Palestine needs the Spirit's shalom. That racial disparities felt among Asian and black communities in North America need the Spirit's shalom. The indigenous communities in Canada have been between the churches and the state's relationship with them. Desperately needs the Spirit's shalom. Our own homes, our own brains, where we suffer abuse, the breakdown of marriages, animosity and estrangement need, we need the Spirit's shalom. Jesus did not give us this peace so that we could just peace out. He didn't do that. He shared us with his spirit of shalom to the end that we may embody the shalom in our marriages, in our, for our kids, in our houses, in the places we're called to be and serve. Peace I leave with you. My own peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. The fruit of the spirit shalom I give to you. Now thirdly and finally, the fruit of joy. We read in verse 28. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now what's Jesus saying here? Now Jesus was making the connection between his going to the Father and his disciples rejoicing. In other words, Jesus' ascension is cause for the disciples' joy. Now what does that even mean? Because all throughout this chapter here, in chapter 14, as a way of comforting his troubled disciples, Jesus was listing a series of blessings that could only be so if he were to depart to the Father. 
So, so far, Jesus described what these blessings would mean for his disciples, what it would mean for them. But then in verse 28, Jesus describes what his departure would mean for himself, for Jesus. That is, Jesus inviting the disciples to be happy for him, to be, be joyful that he's going to the Father. So herein lies the source of Christian joy, at least one of its sources. Our joy is anchored in Jesus' ascended and reunited state with his Father in heaven. Among all the sources, that's one of them. The joy of a Christian is anchored in Jesus' having ascended and being united with his Father in heaven. Now how is this practically a cause for joy, for rejoicing? Well, for one thing, Jesus brought with him into heaven, into heaven, into heaven, our human existence, our genetic material in his resurrected yet sin-scarred body, a body that's entirely new, yet the same old as it were in a mysteriously mixed way. And not only that, that means that Jesus brought with him his skin color, his race, his ethnicity, bearing the scars and wounds of his oppression and murder. A resurrected body of an oppressed and subjugated dark-skinned Jewish Palestinian man who was under Roman oppression. That's what Jesus brought into heaven. Jesus brought all of this not only before the Father, but beside the right hand of the Father, seated as the sovereign Lord of the universe. Here now in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father is a resurrected Dark-skinned Palestinian Jewish man with Roman wounds. So much specificity. Now there's so many implications to this. But the cause for our joy is that Jesus now stands as our representative advocate. As someone who had suffered oppression and injustice. Who carries all of us into the presence of heaven. He not only stands in front of the Father, but sits. He sits. As the sovereign Lord, Jesus stands before God not only for our humanity, but for our suffering, our oppression, our injustice, constantly interceding, advocating, praying on our behalf. He stands for us, but he also sits for us on his Father's throne, ruling as the Lord of all, governing time and space, funneling all of history to the point that he will finally punish the wicked, unrepentant, he will reward the humble righteous and he will make everything new. The spirit of the same Jesus Christ bears in us this fruit of joy, joy that breeds unshakable confidence that Jesus has gone to be with his Father, that Jesus stands for us before his Father, that Jesus is seated beside his Father, reigning as Lord of all the world. That's cause for rejoicing. To represent our suffering, our batteredness, our oppression, our dying and decaying, our disease-ridden selves. He stands before God in his resurrected self, seated and thrown in heaven as a promise, as a guarantee that he will make our bodies new, our countries new, our conflicts cease, our borders erased, every barbed wire fence is crushed, our warfare finished and our shalom forever. How will, you, how will you manifest yourself to the world, Jesus? How are you going to show yourself? I don't see you anywhere. 
How are you going to show yourself, Jesus? I will send to you another helper, the Holy Spirit, who my Father will send in my name. We will make our home in them who love us. And the Spirit will bear this fruit, this fruit of love, this fruit of peace, this fruit of joy in the bodies and lives of those who love me, who love my word, that they may show and tell to the world that I'm the Messiah, that I'm making all things new. That's how I will show myself to the world. Through a spirit-infused church. Now this Pentecost Sunday and through the rest of our days, I pray that we would all together experience afresh the Trinity making His home in us. The Holy Spirit of Jesus bearing love, bearing peace, bearing joy in all of us so that the world may see and know that Jesus is the Messiah to the end that God would finally make the whole world and even this planet Earth His eternal dwelling. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.